Please turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what it seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them began speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of them hears in their own native tongue? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia, Camphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. That is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome all of our mothers who are here visiting today. Um, You really, if you look around, uh, all the younger people who are here are really a product of your prayers. I know how much our mothers pray for their children, so even though we're all crammed into one uh, auditorium today, we're just grateful for your prayers grateful for your God's sustaining grace through you. And I, I welcome you to our church today so we can worship together. Now, I know there are people here who um, have suffered a lot. Um, my own family, my wife and I, we've endured four miscarriages. And so I know that there are people here who are quietly, who may be quietly suffering uh, through just loss, a loss of a child, uh, miscarriage, uh, things like that. And uh, I know that there are also people here who have very broken relationships with their parents or with their mothers. And so I just want to welcome you here still. On one hand, we can celebrate those who have great joy in their relationships with their parents. But on the other hand, I want you to know that God sees you, that God understands. He knows. I mean, no one understands what it's like to have a fractured relationship with his child than God himself, who had forsaken his son for his people. And no one understands what it's like to lose a child more than the Father in heaven who sacrificed his own son for his people. And so God understands. God knows. And so as I welcome you uh, and as we celebrate, sometimes even our acquired suffering, we can look ahead. This is a mere first fruit, a taste of what God has to offer for his people in Christ. Now, uh, we're going to turn to this passage And I want to share with you that at the ascension of Jesus, the apostles, they were told to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And this passage tells us that the Holy Spirit came on the day of the Pentecost. So it's really important to know why. Why did he come? And we're going to look at three things today. Uh, We're going to look at a meal, which points to a greater meal a mountain which points to a greater mountain, and a mediator which points to a greater mediator. A meal, a mountain, and a mediator. First, we're going to look at the meal. 
of the feast. What is the Pentecost? In verse 1, the text says that when the day of Pentecost came, in other words, the event itself, it wasn't later called the Pentecost. It actually happened on the day that already was known as the Pentecost. It was celebrated as the Pentecost. And so you really need to know what it means, what the Pentecost actually meant in the ancient times. The word Pentecost, it comes from the word five, penta, right, five, and it means two things. One, we know that Israel in the ancient times was an agrarian culture, and so the Pentecost was a harvest feast. Uh, It was a, a, a culmination of what was really known as the Feast of the First Fruits, uh, what that means essentially is that you know you have a you have a harvest at the start of the harvest. You brought in a sample of uh, the harvest to inaugurate this season, and if that sample was good, that's the first fruits. If that sample was good, then you know that the rest of the harvest was going to be very very good. It was an act of trust. It was an act of trust on one hand because. If the harvest wasn't good, you were already sacrificing a sizable chunk of what you have, what you've earned to the Lord. It was like a tithe. So it was an act of trust. You're trusting that God will sustain, God will provide. But on the other hand, it was a celebration. It was a celebration knowing that if the harvest is good, even if it wasn't good, you knew that what was to come was still going to be better. And even if what you have is good, you know that the harvest is going to be even better. But secondly, the harvest feast it ran almost 50 days after the Passover meal. And what was the Passover meal? Essentially, when the Israelites celebrated the Passover, it was when God's people remembered their rescue from Egypt and slavery, and they went across the Red Sea, and then around 50 days after that moment, 50 days after that escape, God led his people to Mount Sinai, and he physically appeared to them. So the Pentecost was remembering when God physically met with his people through Moses. And he gave them the law. Now, why the law? It's because the laws, laws in our nation, they define a country. Laws define a nation. Up until this point, God's people, they were just a loose aggregation of 12 tribes. They were enslaved at one point, now wandering in the wilderness at another point. Laws define a society. Laws define a country. And so now, before they were loose, now they're together. Before they were enslaved, now they're free. Before they were wandering, now they've become a nation and a new society, God's people. And so uh, the Pentecost was an annual celebration of meeting God in those ancient times at Mount Sinai. So as the people observed that ancient meal at Pentecost, it became new. This meal at the second Pentecost, what we're looking at today, was as a result a new meal. Why? Because now we're seeing a whole new experience of God being with his people. The second point is we have a new mountain. Verses 1 to 4, what do you see? The text says that it was like a sound, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the entire house, the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came down uh, to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, people have a ton of perspectives on this passage, which is why it's important we need to look at it. Now, think about this. Whenever God physically met 
Whenever he physically appeared to his people, he, came, he comes down how? He comes down in fire. In Exodus chapter 3, God appeared to Moses in a fire, in a burning bush. As the people uh, of God were led through the wilderness out of Egypt towards Sinai, what happened? God led them in a pillar of fire. When the people of God finally arrived at Mount Sinai, what did they see? God came down in fire. Why? Number one, fire is brilliant. Fire is warm. Fire is, is, is beautiful. Number two, fire is powerful. Number three, because it's brilliant, because it's warm, because it's beautiful, and because it's powerful, it's purifying. Much like the holiness of God, which is beautiful and brilliant and warm and yet powerful and purifying. But lastly, because it's beautiful, because it's powerful, because it purifies, you can only get so close to fire. Because if you get too close, it overwhelms you. God comes down in fire. There's something about a fire. There's something about a fire. You want to get really close to its warmth. You want to get close to its brilliance. You want to get close to its beauty. You want to close, get close to its, its, uh, its power. But if you get too close, it overwhelms you and can consume you. God comes down in fire because his brilliance is so brilliant. His warmth is so warm. His beauty is so beautiful. His power is so powerful that it can purify you on one hand, but if you get too close to him without any type of shield, without any type of mediation, what happens is that beauty and warmth and power and purification, it'll consume you totally. And so there's this need for a mediator. You have to kind of shield yourself from the fire. On one, on one hand, we want that brilliance and warmth and beauty and power. We desire to have that brilliance and warmth and beauty and power. But on the other hand, we run from getting, we run from getting access too close to that brilliance, too close to that warmth, too close to that beauty and power. We run from that. That's the fire of God. And at Mount Sinai, at the first Pentecost, the fire of God came down on this mountain. God came down in fire and wind. They couldn't take the fire and wind. They trembled and they were terrified. Why? Because they were afraid of being consumed. They knew what it meant. But here, in verse 2, what do you see? In this new Pentecost, it was what seemed like tongues of fire that came down. And what happens? It rests on each person. This time, the fire of God comes down again. But where's the mountain? This time, the fire of God, the beauty and the brilliance and the, and the warmth and the power, it comes down on each person. But where is the mountain? It comes down on the disciples of God. It comes down on the apostles. It comes down on us. We become the mountain. You see, the fire comes down and it separates. That means that every believer becomes a mountain. Every believer becomes this place where the presence of God dwells. So you don't need a temple. You don't need a tabernacle. Why? Because we are the temple and we are the tabernacle. What are the implications of this? On one hand, you can have the brilliance of God. You can have the warmth of God. You can have the power and the holiness of God right now. But on the other hand, 
This is the Feast of the First Fruits. This is the Pentecost. It's a celebration of the coming of the harvest, the first fruits. So this is just a taste of that kind of access. Right now, can you experience God personally? Yes. It's beautiful and brilliant and warm and powerful, but it's just a taste. One day, one day there will be a harvest. It's not yet here. And yet, when it comes, it's going to be very good. It's going to be complete. It's going to be complete fullness, the complete beauty of God, the complete access to his holiness, access to his warmth, access to his embrace. You don't need to be reminded over and over and over because it not only dwells in you, above you, around you, with you all the time. The author of the book of Revelation, John, the Apostle John says that there's no night there because the glory of God is its light. You can't escape light. You see that? You will have access to the fullness of the brilliance and the warmth and the, and the beauty and the power, the presence of the love of God. It's beautiful. On one hand, like Mount Sinai, we're just mountains. Actually, if you've ever been to Mount Sinai, it's a, it's a forbidding mountain. It's not a very pretty mountain. But on the other hand, the fire of God's presence dwells on you and in you. On one hand, there's a fire. It's powerful. It's almost forbidding. You get too close, you may feel like you're going to be consumed. But on the other hand, like a bush that's burning, like the mountain of Sinai, you're not consumed. There's complete and total access, even now, even now. There are people in this room right now trying to figure out what it, does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? And you've been told most of your life, now look, for those who even care, I am a reformed, conservative, confessional preacher. If you even know what that means or if you care to know. Some of you have been told to put your feelings aside, to disregard your feelings, to disregard, to not think about how you feel. But what do you see here when the Holy Spirit presence of God comes down? When you become a believer, when you become a Christian, there's wind, there's fire. You hear and feel the wind and the fire. You're moved by the wind and the fire. Is there no movement in your life? Then it may be because there's no Spirit of God in your life. Some of you may say, gosh, I haven't felt anything in a long time, and you're frustrated by that. You're angered by that. You say, I'm so frustrated. I feel stuck, and I feel empty, and I feel unhappy. That's a feeling. You're being moved. Don't you get it? Yes, knowledge is important. Faith comes by hearing of the word of God, but it doesn't stop with knowledge. It doesn't end with knowledge. You have to keep pursuing not just the knowledge, but the experience of the presence of God daily in your life through Jesus. Is faith rational? Yes. Is faith all rational? No. Is, is there feelings in faith? Yes. Is it all feelings? No. True faith, true belief, true Christianity is a personal experience, a deep personal experience of a rational truth, a rational reality. On one hand, there's truth. You hear it, you read it, 
You study it, it speaks to you, that's the word of God. But on the other hand, it's deeply personal. It's gotta move you. You have to be shaped by it. There has to be an experience of the fear of God that draws you into worship because of his holiness. And there has to be an experience of the grace of God that draws you into worship because of his love, because of the cross, because of the cross of Christ. Because of the cross of Christ, because of the cross of Christ, because of the risen Christ, now you have the fire of God that comes and rests and dwells in you. You become a mountain, a new mountain. Lastly, we'll look at a new mediator. This part's amazing. Probably the biggest difference between the first Pentecost and what we see here in the second Pentecost or this new Pentecost is who actually goes up the mountain. At the original Pentecost, only Moses goes up, one man. He's a mediator. Everyone is terrified. In fact, Moses himself is terrified. Everyone's terrified. So only one man gets to go and experience God. He is the chosen mediator. So only he gets to hear the message of God. Only he gets to hear from God directly. And what is he here? What's the message? It's the law. But if you look at Luke chapter 4 here, the new Pentecost, what do you see? Now, Acts chapter 1, if you go one chapter back, it tells us that there were around 120 people gathered in that space. It wasn't just Jesus' apostles. There were about 120 people present there. But they all hear, and they all are about to speak. And, the, and there's this crowd that gathers around them outside, and they're from a, at least a dozen regions. I think there were like 14 or 15 regions there. And they hear this going on. They were confused by this. They thought everybody was having too much to drink. But in verse 6, it says that each of them heard them speaking in their own language. They're coming from, these are Jews from all over the world, at least the known world. They're coming in. And they're, and they're swinging by because of the nature of the celebrations that were taking place. And they hear what were very provincial people, the Galileans, speaking in their language in these other places. How could that be? There's no way they could have ever even been there. In verse 11, it says that what they were saying was the wonders of God. That Greek word is megaleia or megaleos. That word means the wonderful, mighty deeds of God the works of God. What does that mean? And this part's amazing if you think about it. In the first Pentecost, only Moses went up. Only he went up the mountain. It was a mountain that was burning with fire, and the author of Hebrews says that when Moses saw this mountain, it was such a spectacle that it said that he was trembling. He said he was trembling with fear. This is Moses. He's trembling with fear. Moses had to go up the mountain as, as the mediator of the people he made that trek. He made that journey. He faced the fire. He heard the message of the word of God. He heard from God. He communed with God, and then he came down with the message. And what message was that? It was the law. It was the teachings of God. The first message of God was what? Thou shalt not. Thou shalt do. You must do. You must obey. You want to be my treasure? You cannot you must not commit murder. You must not steal. You must not commit adultery. You must not covet. You see what I'm saying here? Do you get that? But this second Pentecost, everyone gets the fire. Everyone ascends the mountain. And they don't trek up. They don't journey up. The fire comes down to them. They can't get to God on their own. The fire comes down to them. And what's the message that is brought? 
the people around them heard. They're declaring the wonderful works of God. It's a message of grace. The mighty deeds of God. Today, this morning, which mountain are you on? Look, you're either still on Mount Sinai, in a sense, and you think that Jesus Christ, the cross, the church, that all, it's all about obedience. It's all about doing things. And so what you're doing is you're giving and you're serving and you're sacrificing and you're working and you're working, wondering if you're being seen. And when you do well, you feel great. And when you do poorly, you feel terrible. And you're burning out. And you want to know why? It's because you're still living out that first message in that first mountain that first message through that first mediator, Moses, it's the law. You're still living out your deeds, and you're thinking in your head, I have to commit the mighty deeds of myself. It's all about living out my deeds, and you can't. It's all about obedience, and you can't obey. You're being consumed by the fire of the holy presence of God because you know you're getting too close, and you know you don't deserve it. You know you can't live up to it. You're being consumed by the fire because you can never obey enough. You can never be obedient enough. You can never be good enough. You can't. You need to stand on a different mountain. You need to stand on that hill called Calvary, a different mountain where another man, a new mediator, a perfect mediator, Jesus Christ himself, he went up that mountain. He ascended that mountain. Only he could have lived the perfect life, and yet because of his perfect love died the perfect death. He became the perfect mediator for his people. He climbed that mountain. He performed the mightiest deed of God by defeating sin and by defeating death by dying. He defeated sin by becoming sin. Second Corinthians chapter five. He defeated death by dying on the cross. The wonderful, mighty work of God himself to pay the penalty for our sins. How does everybody here have an opportunity to get that fire and still stand without being consumed? How does everybody here have the chance, the opportunity to become a mountain where God dwells and descends and dwells in you and not be consumed? It's because the gospel is not about what you must do, but what Jesus Christ has already done. It's not about what you must finish, what you must accomplish. It's about what Jesus finished. He said it is finished on the cross and what he's done. It's not about the teaching of God, the mighty works of you. It's about the mighty deeds of God and the work of God. The gospel is about the high king who came down and broke through every barrier, broke through the, the unpassable chasm and brought about the ultimate peace treaty between God and man who have been at war for eons, for centuries, taking on every sin, taking on every sin debt of his people that they owed. Jesus Christ on the cross, he got everything we deserved so that we could have everything that he deserved. And so he got the ultimate fire. He was consumed by that fire. It's why we're not consumed.
we get the brilliance. We get the warmth. We get the power. We get the beauty of God. We get the light of God. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it says that at that moment, the sky grew dark. In other words, the light of the presence of the glory of God had departed from Jesus. And it was dark for him. Jesus Christ experienced the ultimate darkness. Why? So that we could have the brilliance of the fire of God. And when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he was really saying, it's Jesus who is our mediator. He climbed the hill of Calvary and he received the fullness of the fire of God. He received the fullness of the justice and the wrath of God. Even Moses was terrified at this. In Exodus, in the book of Exodus, that's the second book of the Old Testament, when Moses asked God to reveal his whole self, God said, no, no, why? Because if you get the fire, if I pass by and you get the full brunt of my fire, my fire is so brilliant and it's so beautiful, it will consume you. My beauty is so beautiful, it will consume you. My brilliance is so brilliant, it will consume you. Moses, you will die. And so what does God do? God places Moses in the cleft of a rock to mediate between him and God. And God says, I will pass by so you will barely see my hind side. You will capture a glimpse of my hind side. It, the rock will shield you from the full brunt of my beauty and brilliance and my holiness. But on the cross, Jesus Christ received the full brunt, all of the wrath, all of the justice of God. And Jesus he, did, he said, why have you forsaken me? He didn't see God on the cross. He endured the wrath of God. He endured the justice of God. He drank it. He was consumed by the fire of God's absence so that we could be consumed in the beauty of God's presence. Jesus Christ was rejected so that we could be accepted. Jesus Christ was disowned by God. It's the only time, the cross was the only time where Jesus Christ doesn't call his God his father. He says, my God, my God. It's the only time in the New Testament where Jesus doesn't call God his father. Jesus Christ was disowned, why? So that you could be owned by God. You could be adopted as his child. And the apostle Paul says, that is power for you. That reality, if you live into that reality, that is power for you. Why? Because the wrath of God and the justice of God has been satisfied on the cross. God is a just God. He doesn't let a single sin go unpunished. But the love of God and the mercy of God is also satisfied on the cross. Jesus endured it in totality for us. That was the mighty deed of God. He defeated sin once and for all. On the cross, you have the wrath of God and the justice of God and the love of God and the mercy of God, and they embrace. At this Pentecost, the people were filled with the Spirit of God. Look, there are people, when they read this text, they think that this passage is about tongues. Oh, this passage is about tongues. Is it about tongues? No. What powered this group to be such a force? 
Just a month ago, they were hiding. They, were abandoned. they abandoned Jesus. What powered this group to be such a force throughout the entire Roman Empire? Tongues? It's not about tongues. It's not about our gifts. It's not about our works. It's about the message. They were declaring the work of God, the work of Jesus on the cross. What's the implication of this? That means to be filled with the Spirit of God. What that means in the Bible, it means to be transformed and shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. These people, they were declaring the work of God. They were wondering at it. They wondered, they longed to look into these things. The Bible says that the angels are constantly trying to figure that out. They are longing to look into how this whole thing is going to unravel. They're looking into how the gospel and the work of God is working in their lives. That's what they were longing to look into. They weren't longing for the fullness of their crypto portfolios. They weren't longing for the fullness of their retirement portfolios. They weren't longing for the fullness optimizing and maximizing their home values and purchase. They weren't longing for the fullness of their baby monitors. They were looking at how the gospel, the work of God, was changing and transforming their lives. That's why they gathered. That's why they sang. That's why they discussed. That's why they prayed. And they did it without fear, with great confidence, with power. And the church spread. They were filled. And there was joy. Are you filled? Or are you just hanging out with people who are filled? Do you look at the gospel in your own life in wonder? Like, how am I here? You ever think about that? How did I get here? Like, just a few years ago, this is the last place that you catch me. Do you ever wonder about that? It fills you with joy. Or are you stuck? It's almost like there's like some sort of a, a, a blockage there. And, and, you know, part of my crassness, but it's like a spiritual constipation. It just hasn't flushed through. You're stuck. And every time you hear the gospel, you say, well, I, I already know that. I already know. God's spirit does his work in you by applying the gospel in your life. And when he's applying the gospel in your life, he's filling you in a sense. It makes you hunger for more of the gospel. It makes you thirst for more of Jesus in your life. You need that. That's the love that you've been looking for all your life. You see that? That's the power that you need. That's the validation and the assurance that you've been looking for all your life. That means now anyone, anyone, no matter where you've been, Anyone can bring this new message, the good news. Look, if the news is about us having to work to gain access on our own, that's not good news. That doesn't yield a good harvest. That doesn't taste good. That's going to make you anxious, anxious, depressed if you fail, anxious that you will fail, anxious that you're going to fail God every moment, anxious that God may fail you. You see that? But the gospel is good news because it's about the work of Jesus completed for you, and that comes with power. It's the good news. Yes, anyone can bring that message. 
Of course we need ministers. Of course we need people who are trained with the word to continue to train you with the message so you will continue to mature and grow in that. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But you no longer need a central person in your life to bring you the assurance, a sense of God's embrace, a sense of feeling validated. You no longer need to rely on the people next to you. You no longer really need to rely on, on your good friends or your spouse or even the applause of others about your children and how they've grown. You see that? You don't need to rely on a central person to bring you the validation and, what, and the message that Jesus already gave you, forgiveness, new life, pardon for sin, and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new works I see. No, new mercies I see. Friends, as we wrap up, are you filled with the Spirit of God? Have you been transformed by the life-giving power of the gospel? The presence of God is consistently and constantly working in your life. Because if it does, it will open you up to many, many possibilities. Many, many, Jesus crossed every barrier. You can cross every barrier. Jesus was able to sacrifice, you can sacrifice. Jesus was able to do all that and fight through and endure every suffering, you can fight through and endure every suffering. And Jesus maintained still joy and trust in God his Father, even while he was in his deepest suffering and deepest darkness, you can do the same because God will never leave you. His presence is always with you. It is assured in the Pentecost, and it gave these people power. That is the power of the cross in his church. Let's pray together.